Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. This episode of the A-Game Podcast is brought to you by Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. Naked Warrior Recovery is a Navy SEAL-owned CBD company owned by William Brannan, who is out of Hawaii right now. They have topicals, they have uh, clothes, they have gummies, they have drops. They have all kinds of different uh, ways that you can take CBD in. To me, it has been an absolute miracle drug. Um, If you take it for 30, 60 days, I can almost guarantee you, you're going to start to feel a lot of those aches and pains and anxieties and things that have been nagging at you for a while, all of a sudden you just forget about them. They go away. It's really helped me with my inflammation. It's helped me with anxiety. It's helped me with my appetite. It's helped me with sleep. It's allowed me to start exercising again on a higher level without my body beating me up. So just alone for the inflammation of taking the gummies once a day for 30, 60 days has been absolutely huge for me. So check out Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see under the affiliates link, uh, Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. If you click on that and you type in code name AGAY in the promo code, AGAME in the promo code, you will get 20% off your orders at Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. Again, Navy SEAL owned. Support them. Get CBD. Take care of your body. Take care of your people. Go check them out on nicknicknick.com slash links and we'll get you going. If you're interested in investing in real estate and would like to discuss some opportunities about how we can get you going with some investments, find you some properties, help you with some lending, get you involved in some projects we're working on, go to www.nicknicknick.com and find a way to see what fits for you or just shoot me an email podcast at nicknicknick.com and uh, we'll get you going. I'm also always looking for great guests. If you have any suggestions, podcast at nicknicknick.com, we can get you going too. Today we have a writer from Facebook. Family Guy, Mark Henneman. I'm really excited. Family Guy has been one of my favorite shows for a very long time. Anybody who knows me for years knows that I pushed MTV's The State and Family Guy and real estate and jiu-jitsu on pretty much everybody. So those are my four big things. So it's really cool to be able to tie them in. I did another podcast today. I got to represent Strong Style MMA on the uh, jiu-jitsu side. Talked to my buddy Marlon earlier from Henzo Gracie BJJ. We got to talk about Matt Serra, talk about jiu-jitsu, talk about real estate. Now we're going to talk to Mark Henneman about Family Guy and real estate. So all in all, it's all coming together full circle. I hope you guys enjoy it. And it was really cool of Mark Henneman to get on and do this interview. Writer of Family Guy, I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast is Mark Henteman. Mark Henteman is not only a podcast host himself, but he is one of the original writers for Family Guy, which as I'm sure anybody who knows me knows, is one of my favorite shows of all time. It's absolutely my humor. I think it's intelligent. I love it. And uh, this is really fun for me because... I found out that he is a real estate investor who has a real estate investing podcast and is really big in the multifamily realm. Um, The founder of Quantum Capital now owns a $90 million real estate portfolio, which has probably um, grown or changed now since the last time I checked on that. But writer, producer, investor, podcast host, worked on Letterman, a writer for Family Guy. And uh, now again, more importantly, we're going to be talking about real estate investing. So Mark Henneman, I am really, really happy to have you on and get to talk to you. You know, again, you've You've put together two of the biggest loves in my world, which are real estate and family guys. So thank you very much for coming on today. 
Oh, awesome. Yeah, great to uh, be on the show. Thanks for having me. Definitely. I, I've been listening to a lot of uh, other podcasts and things you've been on, just uh, following your story. I've been hearing you hit the circuit. I've been listening to your podcast as well. And uh, I know you're probably sick of telling the story, but I would love to have you uh, give a brief overview of your first deal again, because I think that there's so many great teaching points off of it. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that I, I know listen to this that are, are doing bigger deals, but I really like how people everybody's always looking for the first deal. How'd you get in? How'd you get started? And uh, I, I love your, your story for that or what you did, especially in the market you did it because everybody complains about where I'm, you know, I'm in New York, you're in LA and oh, you can't get deals there, but that is to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, my story with uh, real estate was uh, linked to my writing career, but uh, you know, I grew up in Ohio. Uh, I had never known anyone who had ever made it in the entertainment business, but I loved writing and that was my passion growing up. It, you know, I real estate really wasn't on my radar, but I was fool enough, foolish enough to try it. And after college, I moved up to New York and, uh, you know, became that proverbial starving artist. I moved up to, you know, the most expensive city in the United States, but I had an internship there, an unpaid internship with MTV back in uh, the, the mid nineties and uh, and it was exciting. It was fun, but uh, it didn't get paid anything. And then, you know, the, the internship ran out and I was just a broke, you know, destitute starving artist in a big city. And, you know, you know, I, I say this a lot, but like it gets romanticized that you're a cool, <laughs> you know, s struggling artist, but uh, you know, it sucked. It, it was, uh, you know, I was working 12 hours a day. I loved, writing that I loved pursuing writing. It was something that I didn't get trained for in college or in high school or anything. It was, you know, my, it was my mission to deconstruct comedy and storytelling and figure out why things work when they work and why they're bad when they're bad. And I enjoyed all that stuff. But you know, when my rent was coming due, you know, I was bolting awake in the middle of the night all the time, panicked over how I was going to pay my bills and, and pay my rent. And, so, you know, I struggled with that, uh, but finally I got a break. I, I got hired to write for David Letterman, uh, and, uh, you know, that was my, my big break. And then I moved out to L.A. shortly after that because that sort of experience taught me that 95% of the entertainment business is in L.A., and I didn't know anything about anything. So I moved to New York and assumed, like, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's in New York. So <laughs> But I moved out to LA and you know, joined a, a new show just starting up called Family Guy. And I, I got on the ground floor of that and it was exciting. And with my first script payments, I, I think I'd written two episodes and I had about $45,000 saved up. I, my landlord raised the rent on me and in our one bedroom apartment and I went out looking. I'm like, all right, screw this guy. I'm gonna go find another apartment. And my wife and I, who was, I think, my fiance at the time, we went to an open house at an apartment and walked out. And across the street, there was an open house for a, a single family. And I, we wandered in, just it was a Sunday and had nothing to do, and started talking to this broker. And this broker was like, Why are, if you've got you know, nearly $50,000, why are you throwing that away on, on rent when that could go to a mortgage? And I was like, Are you kidding me? Like, I am expecting to be unemployed within the next like six months. And probably it'll stay that way for years 
before I sort of pack up and go back home. But, um, you know, we talked and eventually I said, you know, the only way I would consider on taking out a mortgage is if, if, if it were the best investment I had ever made, if it's that I'm in. And she, we, we kind of parted ways and then I figured I'd never hear from her again. But a couple of weeks later, she calls me and she says, I found the property you need to buy, but there's a catch. You need to become a landlord. And I was like, a landlord? I don't want to be a landlord. But I met her at the property and it was a duplex. It was overgrown. It was 1920s, had really, you could tell there was cool architecture beneath all the overgrowth and, and neglect. But it was also in a great neighborhood that was up and coming very quickly. And I could see what I could do to this thing and to make it dramatically better. And so I said, I like it. I get, I get it. I don't know anything about real estate. What do I do? And she's like, you know, put together an offer. I recommend that you start at, you know, maybe 350. And this was listed, I think, at 379, 379,000. And of course, it was LA. So there was 15 other buyers in the picture. <laughs> And it turned into a bidding war. And every day, the price was going up 15 grand. And I would just call the broker. And I said, what do I do? What do I do? And she's like, I think it's still worth it. I think you should hang in there. And so I did. And it was another sort of roller coaster ride where I didn't know when to get off. I didn't know how to evaluate this thing accurately. But uh, you know, I could see the, see the potential in the area. And I knew location was important. And you didn't have to, another great thing about the location is you could walk to this place called Larchmont Village, which was incredibly charming restaurants, shops, you know, everything you could want to do on a weekend. And you never had to get in your car in LA, which was great. So I stuck with it. And after two weeks, I won the bidding war by paying $435,000. I think that's where I ended up for this property that was listed for 379 and I had started at 350. And I immediately thought I had made the most disastrous decision of my life. And that it would probably make me broke, you know, bankrupt, you know, possibly in jail for this dumb decision. But I embraced it, tried to embrace it and moved in and, uh, you know, tried to embrace becoming a landlord. And my first tenant was uh, Mike Henry, who's on Family Guy, he does the voice of Cleveland and Herbert and Consuela. And uh, he made fun of me for being a landlord. Uh, and I threatened to evict him pretty much every week. And so I survived it. You know, we got into it. And, and you know, basically in year one, I thought I had made the biggest mistake of my life. In year two, I refinanced. I got out of the PMI thing that a lot of people are familiar with. It's, it's when you go below... 25% down, you have to get private mortgage insurance. So I was able to, to refi out of that. And so year two, I was like, all right, this, this, maybe there's some potential here. And then in year three, I think I refinanced again down, you know, I probably shaved three percentage points. Cause when I bought in uh, 99 is when I went into escrow closed in 2000. I think interest rates were around seven and a half percent, eight percent, and they were dropping. And so I think I refied two years in a row. And by year three, I think it, it was had had the value of it had gone up by the valuation of the appraiser. And my my interest rate dropped and it was covering all my expenses. And I was like, 
wow, this thing is real. This is it. This is the thing that's going to allow me to weather the storm in the entertainment business. And uh, it was covering all my expenses. And like, I could do this. I could do this for the rest of my life. And, and I could go two years without a job and I'll be fine as long as I have someone next door. And, you know, that the location was incredibly, in, incredible demand. So I loved it. I was hooked. That's awesome. You know, there's, there's so many cool things with that story, but I think one of the initial roots that I always want to ask about is when you first started telling your family that you wanted to get into entertainment, what was their reaction? And then when you started telling them that you were getting into real estate, what was their reaction? Um, entertainment, they were always supportive. I mean, I think my parents, I think my dad loved writing and secretly you know, wished he had been able to pursue writing. It wasn't comedy writing, but, you know, he was a writer. He read a lot. He was a lawyer. And, um, but I think they were always worried. <laughs> I found this, heard this more after the fact, decades later, that they were concerned. They're like, what is Mark doing? Like, what does he think he's doing? But, uh, you know, they were always perfectly, perfectly supportive. And then I think <laughs> when I, when I got hired on Letterman, they knew who Letterman was and they were like, wow, how did you pull that off? And then I got on Family Guy and, you know, my dad had no idea what Family Guy was, but all the younger guys in his office started talking about it. <laughs> I think he thought it was uh, kind of cool. Nice. But nice. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, they were, they were supportive. My family was, was supportive, although they had no idea, you know, and I don't think they had any confidence that I would succeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because what I find is a lot of people will pick, they're doing something else and real estate is a little bit of their way out. And then people will go, well, hey, you should go get a, a nine to five or do something with some security that they're not happy with. There, there's really no upside. Like even if you're making a hundred grand a year, it's like, that's it. And then you have real estate that is this thing that time after time it's proven that has made more people independently wealthy than almost anything else you fact after fact, case after case after case. And when you go to friends and family, a lot of them will tell you, don't go into real estate. It's a scam. You're going to lose all your money. But you chose like show business and real estate, which are both like a lot of you eat what you kill, no security there. So <laughs> it was like both of them kind of have the same variable. But I talk to more and more people that are in the entertainment industry that find real estate as a way to pay the bills so they can go now with less stress, go chase their dream. And, you know, I think it's really cool. Are you, are you seeing that that is a parallel that you're finding more and more in the industry? I don't know. I don't know a ton of people that are investing in real estate. I was, I became an evangelist for real estate to everyone I worked with. I was like, you guys are all my best friends and do yourself a favor, invest in real estate, buy a duplex, do what I did. I'll show you them. I'll find, I'll hunt for them. I'll find one. I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll bring it to you and just buy it. And, and to my shock, nobody would do it. And this was in the, the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And, you know, there wasn't as much hype over real estate as there probably is now. And there weren't podcasts and stuff. And, and none of it was on their radar, of course. So, so I was kind of surprised that none, none of them would actually take that step on their own. But a lot of them ended up saying, you know, like, well, you won't start talk, stop talking about this. Why don't you find a deal and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go in on it with you. And so that's, I started investing, you know, my coworkers and friends money 
probably in like uh, 2000, no, actually my first one that I ever did with a group, I did it with five other writers on, most of them were on Family Guy, uh, was 2008. Perfect. <laughs> and we closed, es no, we didn't close escrow. We removed contingencies and a week later, Lehman Brothers crashed Ugh. and then uh, Bear Stearns and we plunged into, you know, the Great Recession in 2008. But, uh, and I was like, oh crap, like <laughs> I was doing this by my, on my own. I had bought like eight multifamily properties through the early 2000s. And I was like, this was the one, of course, the one where I finally bring in a group of people promising that it'll go well. Uh, you know, the, the whole economy collapses. But, you know, the, to my surprise, the miracle was, was we weathered it. We weathered it. We were in a, a workforce C-class, 16-unit property in LA in a good solid part of LA and our rents actually inched upward during the great recession and we stayed full because I think there was a lot of foreclosures so there were people moving out of single family homes into apartments and then a lot of people were moving down from A class and B class and we were the beneficiary of that as a as a workforce housing um you know, C-class property. And we also added value or I added, was adding value to it. So we came out of that. Uh, we weathered that without too much difficulty. I think the one little the effect of the recession was that our bank lender, a, a local regional bank had, had reassessed, internally reassessed the value of it and, you know, placed us below 75% LTV uh, or above 75% LTV, you know, at the bottom of the recession. And they said, we, we want you to supplement your, your loan equity. And so they asked us to come out of pocket. And, you know, we all, everyone who was work, uh, who was invested in that was a, a family guy writer. And, you know, the mm -hmm. ironic thing is during recessions, entertainment, flourishes because people are at home they're watching more tv uh, they just consume a lot more entertainment so you know oh. we were we were going full bore through the the great recession so that was like a small hiccup but we came out of it i think everybody tripled their money when we sold uh in 2015 we waited a couple years after the recovery but uh you know i just breathed a huge sigh of relief that i didn't lose these guys money yeah. You know, that's a really interesting thing to me because when people think about LA real estate and California real estate, most of them are watching these shows like Million Dollar Listing and, the age, and they're looking at these big, sexy, keeping up with the Kardashian houses. And I've seen that like when things start to go south, those are the first types of properties that really start to lose value and get hit. That's not really where you make money. The stuff you're talking about, the average workforce, the the C, the B neighborhoods that you can get that that basic property that has more of a demand for more people. I'm always saying like basic sales is you want to be selling what more people are buying. And that's really where more Americans, more people are going to go to. And although it might not look as sexy money wise, it really is the yeah. more, the more advantageous thing. And again, totally. a lot of those properties, when the, when the market turns, 
I a thousand percent think what you just said is completely genius is the people that are in these A-class assets are going, you know what? Times are tough. Maybe I don't need the doorman. I don't need the gym. I don't need the pool. I don't need the parking. I'm going to come down to something more affordable or maybe split it too. And they move to exactly where you are. And the guys that I know that did really well and were safe, they lost their job. Their retirement got hit. But if they own some good, solid cash flowing assets in decent areas, that carried them through that five or six, seven year recession where everybody else was losing everything. And then they were still, like you said, able to refinance or sell that property off when things picked up. So as much as people go, holy crap, like we're in COVID right now or the market turns and they're running away, running away, running away. The people that go, no, no, are you crazy? When everybody's running away, you stay right where you are. Look what I'm doing. Stay here. That cash flow is going to carry us. I, th I think is just such an amazing thing. So um, two of the things, sorry, I'm trying to keep, keep it straight, but two of the things I want to ask you is one of them, you said uh, when you bought that first duplex, you immediately went, oh my God, am I going to go to jail? Like, am I going to lose everything? Is this the first decision? <laughs> and I think everybody who starts out listens to a guy like you that gets to a place where they have like a $90 million portfolio and they go, well, yeah, but you know, he's different. He's not like everybody else. He wasn't scared to, but, but I, I, I always tell the joke that my first deal slept like a baby walking up every two hours, crying and peeing the bed. It's just, it's <laughs> terrifying, you know? And I think everybody goes through that. Like you're excited to buy it. Then you buy it and then they go, your offer's accepted. And you go, Oh my God. Like now I'm really freaking right. out. So um, how did you deal with the fear of that? You know, cause at the end of the day, it's really the calculator. And I, I've heard you talk a lot about the analysis of the neighborhoods and the deals. And I think when you can really pay attention to the data and not the emotion, it wipes that away. Yes, I think that was the only one that I was really freaked out about. And I was so keenly aware as I was going through it that I don't know anything about this. Like, I, did, I knew stuff instinctively, but I was like, God, I wish I had educated myself prior to this experience because I was on this roller coaster and um, I didn't know how to make good decisions. And so immediately after closing escrow and moving in and taking over, I started devouring every real estate book I could because I knew I needed to get educated on this. If I were going to survive, it was a survival, a matter of surviving or not. And so I learned a ton in those first couple of years of owning that property and, uh, and, and doing that. And yeah, I, it, it faded, you know, my, my anxiety faded. Uh, and you know, the other thing that I love about real estate that I discovered on that property is I, uh, you know, I was not aware of how it was appreciating. I wasn't following the economy at the time. I, you know, we went through the dot-com bubble uh, burst in 2000. That was right after I took over. And then 9-11 happened like a year later. And with both of those events, I was like, all right, well, there it goes. You know, I just, uh, I guess I'll just start over. But, uh, but what I wasn't, and then it kind of picked up from there after, after 2001, we went on a, you know, a tear in the real estate market appreciation for the next like five, five or six years. But what I was not aware of, what I loved about real estate is while I was obsessing over like repairs and, you know, I remember when the dishwasher broke at <laughs> next door at the next door unit, I was like, oh crap, this is going to cost me $300. Like what a what a mess. Why did I get into this real estate thing? But like what I wasn't paying attention to, I was always keenly aware of like how much I had to spend to repair something. 
But what I wasn't aware of was all the things that were happening totally off my radar. And those things were, you know, it was the uh, loan pay down every month. I was paying down, you know, maybe $3,000 of my, my, my principal. Um, there was depreciation. I was, I was getting, you know, enormous depreciation by being invested in this, uh, this asset. And then also, you know, the appreciation of uh, the market, the market was charging upwards during that time. And I think at one point I calculated that I was probably making about $35,000 a month on that property because I bought, you know, ultimately I, I bought it for 435,000 and I ultimately sold it for 1.27 million. And, uh, you know, I had put 10% down with, uh, that first time loan. And, you know, I didn't know about the FHA loans where I could have gotten half of that. I could put 5% down, but, uh, you know, I had a phenomenal return. I I've never touched anywhere close to that possible partially because I don't use aggressive as aggressive leverage then, but I, I made like a 2000% return on that, uh, on that property. You can't beat that. That's an amazing return. You know, I think the, the number that you just said for the profit you made on a duplex is really insane. And, and you know, I've been a guy that I started out in New York and those numbers frightened me being that I was like, I have no money, I have no experience, I have no credit, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I start out buying these one bedroom things that are like seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollars? I can't. So I started going and buying these houses in Georgia and Detroit and Vegas that were like 50, 60, 70 grand. You throw 20, 30 into them, you sell them for 170, 180, 190. Those to me felt safer. And then, you know, as we're dealing with land developments and stuff and you know, you need somebody to give you five, 10, 15 million dollars. And you're realizing that if a deal's a deal, there's somebody that's going to lend on it. There's somebody for it, regardless of the size. It's all just math, but yeah, you're on the sure. other side of that. And I know you, you coming from Cleveland, I have a few friends that live in Cleveland and they're buying a ton of multi-units there because they're going, well, look at the costs, look at the returns. But on the flip side of that, you don't have to buy a 90 unit building in California to make you know, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars on it. So there, right. there's give and take for both of those. Have you looked into doing some of those Midwest markets as well? Like what attracts you to staying in the LA market? Yeah, you know, I all of my my first eight years of multifamily investing was just by default in the market that I lived in because I didn't know anything else. But I think uh uh like what uh my strategy that I was forced to do was I had to buy the cheapest buildings I could find. And I was in, extreme, in an extremely expensive market. So after that duplex, I, was, I, I instantly appreciated economies of scale living in that duplex because I remember looking across the street, looking out the window across the street at the four unit. I was like, oh, it'd be so much better to have four units. And then next door to that was a six unit. I was like, oh, even better with six units. Because if someone moves out, I'm fine. I could still survive when I'm unemployed. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I so I was buying you know as many units as I could for the least amount of money, and so that that drew me to B and C class in LA. And then I would you know aggressively value value add them. But I, I always stuck in good neighborhoods. I always tried to pinpoint the most up and coming neighborhoods and not the hot neighborhoods, not, you know, I would never touch Beverly Hills or stuff like that. It, I think I wanted the 
the pockets that were still transitioning. So I was getting good at identifying those and then putting, putting that money in. And yeah, I, I, I had two drivers. I had the driver of, you know, the market itself of LA that was appreciating at a very brisk pace. And then I had the value add that I was adding and that combination just turned out to work pretty well. And I think as uh, to answer your question, like, did I ever look towards the Midwest? I always thought that those, I was a little concerned about that. I, I don't know if it was myopic from my, my point of view, but I realized that I was in, I saw the benefits of being in a really major market where there was a ton of demand. And I experienced it with, it with that, first, that first duplex, there was 15 buyers there. And a lot of the properties that I would go look at, there was a crowd of buyers. And then, you know, I got to be, you know, the beneficiary of that when I sold is there was often a bidding war. And that's what I think there was at least 15 buyers. There might've been 20 buyers when I sold that duplex. And I didn't even price it at that 1.27. I think I priced it at like 1.095 or something like that. And it got bid up to, to 1.27. It was, so I really, I really recognized the value of being in a prime market. And it goes back to the oldest maxim of real estate. It's location, location, location. And I was willing, I recognized that I needed to sacrifice some cash flow in this market because, you know, when you have that many bidders on any building, the cap rate is going to get compressed. And so the, the cash flow is not going to be as strong. I was fortunate that I had a, a job that I could rely on. And so that was my model is, is just keep working. I loved my job. I was fun to go to work every day, but I also loved real estate and I knew that I was going to do real estate for the rest of my life. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the Tri-State Area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real Mackenzies, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He's played all over the world and he's also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught Tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585. 0585 for your free online drum lesson. That's amazing. I love that. Now, you know, I think a, a, something that people will look at when you mention, hey, I like to buy the cheapest properties in the area and up and coming areas. A lot of the stuff that I get sent on a daily basis when people are like, high cap rate, high cash flow, huge cash on cash, uh, transitional area usually translates into it's a crime war zone, a violent crime mm. and stuff like that. But one of the things I've heard you talk about, which is what I'm learning to do more, we're, we're doing some developments out in Illinois and all that information 
of what's actually up and coming versus what some wholesaler or realtor is telling you, you can actually go find facts about what's happening in those neighborhoods and you don't have to play the guessing game. And I think that that's such a small basic step that most people are too lazy to go take the extra effort and they go, yeah, it looks good. So instead of buying this decent safe deal, I'm going to go for this other deal because I'm, I'm on paper, it's a higher cap rate and it's really not a good area. But your answer to that, that I'd love you to talk about with using some of the resources you had, there are ways you can find out, is it a transitional area? Is it up and coming? Or is it just some crap somebody's trying to get me to pay more money for the property for? Yes. Yes. And I always lived near the buildings that I bought. Uh, so I, 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 was not in, I was not in Santa Monica. I wasn't on the coast. I'm, I, I started out in, in the Hollywood area and you know, I live just south of Hollywood now. And uh, you know, there's this pocket and it kind of landed this way. This is how it landed in my lap and my, as I was venturing into real estate is downtown LA used to be a ghost town. It used to be called Skid Row and it was just abandoned and empty all through the nineties and in even the early two thousands. And then it just exploded. And I, I know there was a concerted effort to revitalize downtown LA and also revitalize Hollywood. When I got out to LA, I didn't know anything about LA. And the first time I drove through Hollywood, it was, it was like prostitutes and drug dealers. And I was like, this is the most recognized, one of the most recognized cities on the planet earth. Like you could go across the world and people know Hollywood. How is this city not taking care of this? Like there's so much history here that you could see Charlie Chaplin's home and everything was in disrepair. Like why, you know, it just was baffling. And I knew like, there's no way it's going to stay this way. Hollywood is a brand known worldwide and it's got so much culture and so much history there that uh, I wanted to, I wanted to get in ahead of that transition. And I did, I, I was targeting Hollywood early on and then also Koreatown and close to downtown and all those places were on the fringe of other areas that were booming and these were just cheaper locations. And you know, I'm sorry to go back to a question that uh, you, you asked, but a point you made, like you don't have to get 50 units in Georgia. And I, I noticed that I started to appreciate paying a lot per unit. Like, and I don't, in LA, sort of the range that you'll pay per unit is probably 200,000 a unit up through, you know, when you're on the coasts of Santa Monica, you'll pay, they'll ask a million a, a, a unit for a lot of buildings, especially duplexes and, and fourplexes. And I would try to buy, you know, in the two, two to 250 range. And I was, I was zeroed in on cost per square foot because I always thought like cost per square foot is the most objective measure of the value of that asset that you have and everything else is land. So I would pick a good location and then try to get the cheapest, the asset based as cheaply as I can by a cost per square foot basis. But I did, you know, when I was comparing and ever, whenever I looked outside of LA and I could see like I could buy, you know, maybe 500 units in Georgia for $5 million or I could buy, you know, maybe 20 units in LA. I, I, I like the aspect of investing in a major market where you're 
putting most of your money towards the land. And so I only had to deal with, uh, you know, a smaller number of units. And so if, if I had a major plumbing repair or major electrical repair, it was so negligible compared to what the value of the total unit was. Like, so if I had a, if I had a uh, plumbing repair that cost me $2,000 and the unit that I bought cost $300,000, that's less than 1%. And, uh, you know, it's not going to break you. Like, so you never really sweat the repairs in when you're invested in a big market. It's just, they're all negligible. Fair enough. Yeah. And again, you know, I think a big thing that you're getting too is even in some of these, these Midwest markets that are known as these great cash flow markets over, you know, 10, 15 years, I've definitely seen appreciation, but the appreciation you're getting plus the cash flow in those markets and like the LA is, is a huge, even some of my, um, a couple of these guys I was mentoring in, uh, they're in Dorchester in, in like the Boston area. And within a year, they made a couple of mistakes on what they were doing. But because the area was appreciating so much, they still made a bunch of mistakes, held it way longer and still made like $96,000 on it because of the appreciation. And they got to hold it as like a three family for cash flow during that whole time. So there's, I just think it's so interesting because every place somebody lives, they have reasons why you can't make money here. And then you talk to somebody else and they're making money there. It's just really a mindset of, of looking for opportunities and finding a way to make it work. <laughs> right. Definitely. I, I never heard a podcast. I was kind of in, in isolation doing this. Yeah, I was in the, the writer's rooms all day, all day long. So I would come home and do real estate, but I didn't hear a real estate podcast until like 2013. And I had been doing it for 13 years by then. And everybody's like, oh, you can't, you can't invest in in Los Angeles or New York or coastal markets. I was like, what? Well, nobody told me that. And I've been doing it you know, all this time. And it, it's been great. Yeah. It's funny just because uh, it's, it's almost saturation. There's almost too much information out there that, you know, you, it's so easy to get that confirmation bias. If you hear somebody say you can't do it and that's the thing <laughs> right. you give up, you know, versus it's so much harder for some reason. People don't want to hear, well, this guy said he can do it, but this other, I'm going to listen to him because that makes it harder. And then I don't have to face that I have to do it. But you know, with you investing as uh, somebody who's doing, doing something that they love, I think is a really interesting factor too. And I, I heard you talk about how you would hire a management company and it wasn't exactly passive because you still have to sort of manage your management. You still have to study their KPIs and make sure that they're not doing anything weird and you got to study that stuff. So how do you really balance your day as a real estate investor when you're in the writing room versus how often are you actually checking up on your KPIs and your management and your assets and your numbers for that property? What, what was your schedule like? Well, it's changed and evolved over the years. Like I have, I, the early years of Family Guy, we were there all hours and it, we were there till two in the morning and it was a, it was a grind and it was, it, it was a huge commitment. But, you know, fortunately, this, this, the show is now 21 seasons in and uh, I think we premiered last night uh, uh, for our 21st a season. Congrats. And we've, and there's like a, a portion of the writing staff that's been there the whole time. So we've gotten more efficient. We've gotten better at it and we've streamlined the process. We've honed our systems. So it's become a more palatable uh, work schedule. And, you know, another going back to the forgiveness of, a, of a, an appreciating market is there was times, you know, I left 
Family Guy to, to create a show that I did on Fox called Border Town a couple of years ago. And I think another time as well, this show called Three South. Uh, but uh, in during those times, running a show and creating a show, that was a you know 90 hour a week job, seven days a week. And during those periods when I had you know, maybe a dozen multifamily properties, I handed the entire thing over to the management. And that was, you know, during the, the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and coming out of the recession uh, as well. And they did everything. And I think going back to, you know, the management companies were looking back, they were inefficient. I needed to be watching them better. But the market forgave my mistakes because it was appreciating rapidly and I still sold those properties, but I would look at them after like a month of like just being in the grind in a writer's room. And then I would go back to look at things. And I'm like, Oh God, like they're taking so long to rent units there. You know, look how, how slow they are to repair, make repairs. And, you know, just looking at it, like, I wish I had more time to do this, and eventually I started bringing on an asset manager um, and I've had, you know, gone through a, a few asset managers to help me do that. And then also, you know, nowadays where we've got a, a, a much more, you know, efficient, but reasonable work schedule, I think I can juggle both pretty easily. And I've gotten good at it. You know, I know where to zero in on the real estate side and, and focus on those. And I've got help. Good team get a good team. A good team makes all the difference in the world. And I think you just hit a really good point where, you know, a couple of my friends, again, I, when, when I was in college, I would literally have people come visit me. And when they would come visit me, I'd be like, the first thing we're going to do is everybody's going to come into my dorm and I'm going to pull up my computer and we're all just going to watch every season of family guy. And I would like cram it down everybody's throat. And I love it. And now <laughs> I do a lot of the same thing with jujitsu. So uh, a few of my friends who have started recently, I just had a conversation with him and he said, you know, I got tired so fast that I run and I lift weights and I'm a firefighter, I'm in shape. But over there, I, I just, I got really tired and I couldn't really hang. And I was like, well, you, you wind up knowing where it's important to relax and where it's important to push. And I think you just said that as you, you kind of got to the place that you knew what's important to focus on, what things you have to check. And starting out, I, I think the way you said you had to constantly learn things and it was a grind, a grind, a grind. You do build up to the point where you go, okay, now I know if I just look at a couple of these key indicators, yep. it'll tell me a lot of the picture that I, I need to know. So having managed that, what are some important things you can really back out that you learned or for ways to manage property managers? Because you know, on the on the fix and flip side, the whole thing is always like, oh man, contractors, contractors, contract. But on the the apartment side of renters, it really is the, the property management. And you know, I've I've learned the hard way that one of the biggest mistakes I've made is not firing a bad manager sooner, sooner enough, getting yeah. them out of there, man. So what are, what are a couple of little tricks of the trade that you picked up along the way to, to spot if they're doing things good or bad? Yeah, I've been through five management companies possibly. And I think I've gotten to uh, a, a management company. I think they don't have all my properties, but I've got a couple management companies that are, are, are good now. And I've got other members of my team that are like, exponentially better than uh, when I started off. And I started off pretty good, but I think I've got people on my team that are just go so over and above. They know that I'm busy and uh, you know they take things off my plate and they've got 
more experience than I do. I've got, you know, a guy that, you know, oversees a lot of the financing of my properties and, you know, he's got 35 years of experience and he just takes everything off my plate. So I could do a refinance and, um, or finance a, a challenging finance for a property. And he just knows that I'm busy. So he'll figure it all out. And I trust him and, you know, done 50 plus loans with him and he gets them done and he's never not gotten one done. So uh, that's a huge time savings. But I think, uh, yeah, on your property management company. So I think it goes back to, it goes back to even pre-purchase. Like when you're looking at that offering memorandum from uh, the broker, I, I think if you're a new real estate investor getting in, you know, number one, rule number one, you cannot trust what's, what's being told to you through the marketing of the property. I think the cap rate's gonna be exaggerated. The expenses are gonna have omissions. And I think, you know, read carefully because I think technically they can't lie about, uh, about what the rents are, but they could, you know, have a vacant unit and they could be marking it at, you know, what they call market rents that are higher than what is achievable. And so it looks like a rosy picture, like, oh my God, I just op looked online and this is a, a six cap, like I got to jump on this. But, you know, my first response is, is it a six cap? It probably isn't. It's probably a 4.7 cap. So I think, you know, in that, that'll build that muscle, uh, that mental muscle to, to analyze deals. And after you close and take over, I think the next thing you want to do and what I do is I usually operate, I let the building operate on its own and I watch it for a couple months. I don't really step in and, and make too many demands of the management company, but I look at what the expenses are coming in at. I watch how they're, are, how they're leasing and how they're advertising and marketing and all that stuff. And then I, I will create a budget. I'm like, all right, we've run this thing for six months. This is what the budget I think should be and give that to the management and say, here's our expectations. And so I think if you stay within this budget, things are going to be fine. But if it's above that, you're going to get a lot of questions from us. And, and so, you know, tracking, tracking that, know, knowing how your building should operate is a really key thing to learn as soon as you take over. That's great info. That's great info. You know, you, you mentioned during a recession a lot of the times that entertainment is doing really well. What are you finding now? Because all I'm seeing, again, I'm, not, I'm obviously not in that industry, but I'm hearing a lot of, because of COVID, a lot of the shows are not in production and people are sitting on the sidelines a lot. Are you now getting out there as the name in some of these circles for you know, Family Guy writers or some of the other shows that you're in that people know like, hey, you know what? we have to do something. Let's call Mark and try and get into one of these real estate things. Are you finding more people starting to inquire about something they can do for a little bit more security during the uncertain time we're in right now? I think there's been a little bit of an elevated interest. I think some people have money uh, on the sidelines that, uh, that they've reached out. But, uh, I, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't aggressively solicit uh, investors. I think, it, you know, I, I think if people come to me I'm happy to include them, but uh, but I I don't want to be that guy in the in the entertainment business. I want to be known <laughs> as a writer, not as like a guy trying to sell them <laughs> on something. But uh, but yeah, during this period, you know, fortunately, animation is something that can continue through 
uh, COVID and we have been, uh, you know, un, you know, unhindered by, by this pandemic, we've been moving forward, but yes, a lot of movies are not in production. A lot of sets, they won't allow, you know, live sets to occur, but I think it's starting to open up now. Uh, but I think in the entertainment business, uh, yeah, it's kind of the same. I have a mix of entertainment investors and a lot of outside entertainment as well. And I think when we find a deal, we just kind of reach out and see who's interested. But uh, we haven't done a deal. We've come close on a couple deals. That's That's been my experience during COVID is, is looking at a lot of deals and then over time identifying a, a couple of them that seemed attractive and then going down the road and something wasn't right about it so we we didn't we didn't move forward so i don't i don't i haven't closed all right i did close i i had some 1031 exchange money and i bought uh, two properties two multifamily properties a 22 unit building and a seven unit building in la nice awesome now you know the family guy as a whole um I don't, I think it's happened once or twice since then, but I remember when it got canceled and I was devastated. Like, you know, I'm trying not to keep that much, but Megan Hackshin, who uh, I've been a long time friend, but me and her were like pushing Family Guy and everybody quoting it all the time. Like we loved it. And then we were so sad. And then that petition started coming around of like, say Family Guy, say Family. And we were like, AOL instant messaging it to everybody because that was like <laughs> the thing right? at the time. And, uh, and it got bought back. And it was the only show that I knew of ever prior to that that had gotten taken off the air and then bought back on because of such a public demand of people pushing it back. And, you know, that might not seem so weird right now when a show gets dropped from a channel and then Quibi or Netflix or Amazon. Picks but then that was not happening. We, I, I'm assuming you were part of it at that yeah. time. Yeah, what I mean, we like? had gotten canceled, I think, three times prior, or twice prior to our, our longer two-year uh, cancellation. But uh, yeah, when we got canceled, we were done. And, and my experience of that was, uh, you know, I went and did that show, a show called Three South on MTV that I created. Um, and then I started hearing, you know, I was seeing Seth and seeing other people, we'd go out, uh, you know, it, it's on some weekends and I heard this murmuring of like, uh, family guy might come back. Family, family guy has a, has a chance. And I was like, Oh, come on. You know, everybody, most of them are like, come on, don't, you know, just, it's time to move on. Like we, we <laughs> did our best. We got canceled over and over again. And this one is permanent, but yeah, it was, it was miraculous. And you know, it's a, it was such a, it had never happened before. Like you're saying, and a very savvy thing that that was done by Gary Newman, who was the president of the of 20th Century Fox at the time, is he had he gave Adult Swim the rights to air Family Guy reruns for nothing, for free. And he said, I'll let you, you know, you could put these on your channel and for free for one year. And if they do well we'll have a conversation after one year. So they, so Adult Swim put Family Guy reruns on. And, and then, you know, I remember Time Magazine wrote an article that, you know, Family Guy reruns were 
were getting higher ratings than Leno and Letterman at the time, like all the big late night live, you know, first run talk show episodes. And that had never happened before. And so we built this momentum and, you know, miraculously we got brought back. And I think like when we reconvened in the writer's room, we were all so excited. We couldn't believe that we were back <laughs> doing this. And, uh, and we were deconstructing it and we we're like, at the time we were, it was heavily uh, reliant on Nielsen ratings. And uh, we were not getting right. You mentioned that you found it in your college dorm and you guys watched it in your dorm. Well, Nielsen had no presence in, on college campuses or prisons. So we, we always were like, oh, we, we were brought back by college students and prisoners. <laughs> <laughs> that's, who, that's who gets credit for bringing Family Guy back. That's awesome. It must be something with me, my taste, because I recently had uh, David Faustino on and he said the same thing. He said, married with children, one of their biggest demographics, <laughs> prisons. He was like, it was <laughs> right. same type of thing. But, but I think that's awesome. And the, you know, the, the way the show's taken off since then, I mean, I, I got to think aside from the Simpsons, which had a little bit of a head start, it's probably the most successful animated show in the history of TV, right? It's got to be right up there. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah, it's it, uh, yeah. I remember uh, I remember starting on it and thinking like, yeah, this is uh, we're doing, we're kind of following in the Simpsons wake, and maybe that's not a good thing. Um, but you know, eventually we kind of we kind of carved out our own sensibility, and a lot of that's credited to Seth is pushing to make it edgy. I remember being in those first months in the room. You know, he wanted to go all all out like you know and and i was like you know i thought we were kind of doing a version of the simpsons but uh but in retrospect like that was a key way that it differentiated itself from the simpsons yeah you know the the i like the edginess of it obviously like i, I think that's funny but one thing i i very much appreciate later in life is i remember growing up it was almost thought of you know, people wouldn't support intelligence. Intelligence wasn't put together with funny. And I think what has happened is a lot of the people, you know, I grew up with, um, I used to hang out with Amy Schumer and a lot of some of my other friends that did some writing and some standup. You wouldn't peg them as the funny person in the room with the class clown, but I would always remember how intelligent they were. And then where they would sit down and they would write things out and then go and do a bit, I started realizing that the people that write on shows like Family Guy and a lot of the standups that are out there are extremely intelligent people and they find the ways to make things funny and deliver it. So I really appreciate that you guys, you know, guys like you, who obviously when you hear you talking about real estate and all the analytics of that, you're a very intelligent person. And I think it's good for kids growing up to realize that like you can be a mix of all these great things and you can be smart and being smart relates to success and intelligence and fun and, you know, comedy writing and all these things that you can branch out for that maybe didn't really have that insinuation, you know, decades ago. And I, I think it's really good for kids and people to see growing up. Oh, cool. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm flattered that you uh, consider our show intelligent. You know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we, we think we're just scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, we were talking about Joe Latrulio and those guys, and I, I've interviewed almost all the guys from the state at this point, And they were even talking about how like, even a simple fart joke, the amount of like different takes for that and different angles for that to make even a simple yeah. joke funny, it, you know, it's like you said from the beginning to take the whole thing back to full circle is 
they, they look at like a million dollar listing type thing or, or what people are doing, but they don't see all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes for that, that people don't see. And I think the same <laughs> way you're doing that stuff on real estate is probably the same way that it goes into comedy. So, you know. Yeah, you got to go beyond beyond the surface. And yeah, and yeah we're always just having fun, I, I think, in that writer's room. I think there's a, a number of very intelligent people and some of them are, you know, borderline autistic. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, we just kind of have fun and, and make ourselves laugh. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's fun to go to work um, I think uh, we laugh a lot and it's not, it's rarely at our jokes because I think we're very critical of our jokes, but we make fun of each other. And that's when I laugh the hardest. Nice, nice. <laughs> we're a bunch of fourth graders. Yeah, that, that's awesome. I love that. It's again, it's the same thing I hear from anybody that is doing something that they love and doing it successfully for a long period of time. I just had Gary Kenny on. I think she comes out this week, but she was like, the best part of what we do on Reno 911 is trying to catch each other and make each other laugh with something that they didn't expect. Like, and just being around people that you enjoy doing that with, I think is everything, whether it's real estate or jujitsu or, or, you know, entertainment that, you know, it's, it's all the company you keep in the circles you surround yourself with. And, you know, we, I, we've actually almost done a whole hour already. I, I really don't want to be disrespectful of your time, but I, I did want to hear a little bit about Quantum Capital and your podcast and how people can find you and the way you've put your business together. Sure. I, I created Quantum Capital back in 2014 as a way to formalize my multifamily investing. At that point, I had probably had like, you know, maybe 15 multifamily properties and I was branching out into Austin, Texas. And so, uh, you know, I just kind of created that. And since then we've done syndications and we focus on prime markets. We're not necessarily cash flow driven. We go for, you know, maximum, maximum total return. And so we, we have some cash flow, but we, we try to be in grow big growth markets with, uh, you know, growing population, rent growth, income growth, job growth, and a big tech scene. We think tech is the future and, you know, the tech companies out there are the most profitable companies in the history of the world. No exaggeration. And so I, I think, uh, you know, we're targeting those locations and we don't go into those like tertiary markets. We kind of stay in prime markets. We think those are safe, safest. Um, they're competitive but um, yeah, that's that's what we do. It's fun. I, I work with uh, you know a good team, and uh, and yeah, we're we're, we're getting ready. Uh, you know, we're we're looking at deals all the time, and and I think coming out of this, I will tell you know say this to a lot of investors is uh, is a lot of investors, a lot of new investors out there that may be thinking like, you know, this world has turned upside down. Maybe I should rethink my real estate investing career, I think I would, I'm so much happier to be where we are right now than where we were in uh, November of 2019, because we were, we were at the top of a, of a bubble, like, uh, and that's the worst time to, to jump into real estate. I think the best time is coming out of a recession when you've got nowhere to go but up. And I think, you know, if you could read the economic landscape uh, and kind of get a handle on it and position yourself to be ready to buy as we're coming out of the COVID uh, recession, I think uh, there's going to be a huge opportunity and it's exciting. 
I agree completely. And is, is that part of what you're, what, what made you decide you wanted to do a podcast just because you enjoyed talking about real estate? Was that the catalyst? <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the things was I was, I was acting a lot in real estate. I was in writer's rooms, so I was kind of isolated and I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to meet people. And I saw that as a way, and it's also a passion of mine. Like I, I, I'm very passionate about real estate. I always tell people, you know, I'll get spit out of the entertainment business whenever I will, but I'm going to do real estate until I'm a hundred. I, I did a deal a few years ago where I was uh, in negotiations with this like hard fought negotiating, you know, couple weeks with the seller. And finally, you know, the broker's like, all right, we, he's going to, we are in an agreement on price. And then I waited a couple days and, and I called the broker. I'm like, Hey, I, I haven't seen the seller sign the contract yet. What's going on? Are we still, I thought we had a deal. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Uh, his family's in town for his hundredth birthday. Uh, so just <laughs> give him a couple days. He's going to, he's going to sign the papers. I was like, what? This guy, this guy that's been busting my chops is a hundred. <laughs> and he immediately was my hero. And I'm like, that's what I want to be. I don't want to be sitting in an old folks home or on a beach, even, even on a beach. I want to, be in the mix when I'm a hundred. That's awesome. Turn it up. <laughs> great goal. I love it. Um, your last question before I let you go. If you had a time machine and a younger Mark Henteman came over and asked you for advice, knowing what you know now about real estate and life in general, what advice would you give a younger you today starting out? Hmm. What would I give my advice? Maybe it's coming off of what I, I just mentioned is I always, I was always, always very good at focusing, you know, even, even back to when I was like four years old, my mom's like, you would just sit in the corner and draw for, you could draw for four hours straight. Um, but, uh, so I always worked hard and was focused. I think if I had to tell myself, my younger self, I would say, get out and network. Cause that's important too. Cause I think in both real estate and in writing back then when it, it, my 20 year old self thought that, uh, you know, the only way I'm going to be a writer is if I'm an excellent writer and, and I understand the nuances and I can master that craft. And I think I took the same approach to real estate and it's paid off. It's paid. I can't complain. It's paid off really well. But, uh, you know, as we get in, you know, in the last couple of years, I've seen the social and networking aspect of real estate. And it's fun and it's enjoyable and you meet some good partners and I think those can help you accelerate your growth. So that's what I would tell myself. Fantastic answer. Again, I appreciate your time. It's been an absolute throw for me. I cannot tell you what a big fan I am, a family guy for decades <laughs> and decades now. It's been huge for me. Um, how, how, do, how do people find you? Social media, websites, podcasts? Um, what's the best way for people to follow what you're doing? I think you can you know, you reach out to us. We have a website, quantumcapitalinc.com, where it has a, a way to, to reach out to us. Also, you, know, you could reach out to me at quantum capital, or mark at quantumcapitalinc.com. Okay, outstanding. Again, thank you so much. This has been a thrill for me. I could have talked to you for hours and hours. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, any no, of course. Before I turn you loose. Oh, any, any what? Any final thoughts before I turn you loose? Final thoughts. Um, no, I think, uh, you know, we're at an exciting time. You know, it's it, a lot of people are afraid of it. I think you've <laughs> got to, you know, just embrace the moment. And, and you know, I think uh, there's going to be some great opportunities coming up. 
Absolutely. And I will obviously post links to your podcast and to your website and everything on our show notes. And this will be out soon. Thank you so much. You've been an absolute class act. I appreciate you. And I'm looking forward to seeing the premiere of Family Guy and hopefully years and years more of that and hearing about your investments on your podcast. (laughs) Thank you for keeping me employed. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me too. Have a great day. Thank you so much, Mark. You too. See you next time. You're so 